Everybody doing good this morning? Yes, Trying this again. It was kind of kind of dry earlier this morning. Maybe everybody's just tired and everything, but you know, God is still good, amen. Or perhaps you even had a bad week, but you know, we had that confession last week. You know, it was kind of a tough time for some folks, and it's okay to have a bad week because when life is bad, God is still good. Amen. Amen. So we're grateful to have this opportunity to be with you guys this morning. Grateful that uh, our pastor is getting some uh, much-deserved time away. Uh, he's a very hard-working guy, and I-, I would not want his schedule at all. At all. So every time I think I'm too busy, I think of Brian Crawford, and I, I get up. Really, I take a nap because I get tired just thinking about his schedule. But God is good. God is good. And we're grateful to have, to have this time with you. Of course, we're going through our series called Pulse, highlighting uh, in this series the uh, uh, mission and values of City Light Church, trying to answer the question why the City Light exists. There are so many churches in the Vicksburg area. Why start another one, right? What would be so different about this church that it required planting another church. And we believe that the answer is found in our mission and values and how we intentionally uh, try to live out that mission and those values uh, for the glory of God and for the collective and individual sanctification of our members. Our mission, of course, is to shine the light of Christ in our city through the transformed lives of of his people. We aim to fulfill that mission by intentionally engaging one another and those around us through six values which we affectionately refer to as Christ cured. Last week Pastor Brian did a poll to see who all knew all six values. Anybody want to give it a go? Yeah. It's only been two years, Andrew. That's true. Yeah. Um, Somebody help him. Yeah, I need a unit. Jada. Universal. All right, Elizabeth. Universal unity. Resilient realness. That's my favorite. That's the one we're going to talk about today. Emptying empowerment in the last one. Dedicated disciple-making. Amen. Again, today we're going to talk about resilient realness. And I love this one because the hope behind it is that we build authentic relationships with gospel endurance. I snuck in on a new membership class this morning, and just as I was in there, they were talking about that. So, awesome. But what does it mean? What does it mean to build enduring relationships or authentic relationships with gospel endurance? That means that we're not simply looking to share space. Amen? Integrating what Martin Luther King called America's most segregated hour just isn't enough. It's too surface. We're not looking for uh, uh, limited and surface coexistence. We're not looking for comfort. We're looking for connection. We're looking for deep, meaningful, intentional, personal, vulnerable Comforting, uncomfortable connection. Right? You hear that a lot around here. Get, get comfortable being uncomfortable. 
We want to move from simply sharing space on a Sunday morning to sharing our lives, and we want to share our lives in such a way that we celebrate each other's joys and bear the weight of each other's sorrows. And through our sharing, our hope is to forge a community fitly joined together where each joint supplies the other and builds itself up together in love, as mentioned in Ephesians 4 and verse 16. We want authentic relationships, but not just authentic. We also want them to be enduring, gospel enduring. Relationships that last beyond the fresh by date. It's easy to rejoice and endure when things are new and fresh and exciting. It's, it's easy to, do, to endure when people share all of our same likes and dislikes. Easy to endure when others share our thoughts and our preferences, but what happens when the honeymoon is over? What happens when the inconvenience of life tests our relationships? What happens when our preferences are, are challenged? What happens when relationships are chafing rather than comforting? For our relationships to endure, they need a foundation that's stronger than our preferences. Pastor Brian said once that a covenant is only as good as the people who make it, right? So the goal of resilient realness is to forge relationships that endure because at their foundation is Jesus, our chief cornerstone, and his atoning work on the cross. So, of course, we're in Ephesians this morning. We've been here actually for... A couple of weeks now, and I, I found it fascinating how similar some of the issues they were dealing with are so close to some of the uh, issues that we're dealing with in society, and I uh, felt it worth sharing a few things before we jumped in. So the city of Ephesus was a, a capital city located in West Asia Minor, just off the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea. Some scholars believe the letter uh, of Ephesians was written to all the churches in Asia Minor, and meant to be read and then circulated around the different bodies of believers, but it was simply first sent to the um, believers in Ephesus. Being a metropolis, of course, they had a diverse population and diverse culture, and much like other societies, including our own, secular culture had too much of an influence on the church rather than the other way around. And so the church struggled with everything from legalism to occult practices to Racial and cultural division. Go figure, right? The racial and cultural division was so serious that Romans permitted Jewish leaders to execute violators of Jewish law regarding the dividing law that separated Jews and Gentiles in the temple. As a matter of fact, Paul is writing his letter uh, from prison right now, being accused of taking a brother, a Gentile, beyond this wall. He wanted so desperately, Paul wanted so desperately for the body of believers to be a good influence, a good witness to society around them. And so in his letter, and we've heard it again before in our time here, he addresses issues of both behavior, or rather belief, and behavior. His hope is to, by God's grace, draw them beyond their identities as just Jews and Gentiles who only seek to devalue one another and take every opportunity to uh, set boundaries between them, even in worship, thus the dividing wall in the temple, and drive them towards seeing themselves as a collective 
workmanship of God. A people who have all received, both Jew and Gentile, all received of the riches of God's mercy and great love. Men who were dead in their trespasses, but now in Christ, together have been made alive. People who were once strangers, but are now fellow citizens and members of the household of God. So as we look at our text this morning, we'll see three things to help us shape how we see resilient realness. And that's separation, reconciliation, and unification. Amen? Hear the words of the Lord in Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In separation, we have here both diversity and division. Diversity in the people groups represented in the uncircumcision and the circumcision or Jew and Gentile. Division comes in in a couple of ways. We'll get to that a little later. But diversity, rather, is not a bad thing, right? We see diversity all throughout the Bible, even in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and 1 says. After he said, let there be light, he separated the light from the darkness, called the light day and the darkness night. That's diversity. God created the waters and the land and the land he called earth and the waters he called seas. Diversity. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seas, fruit trees, let the water swarm, let the birds fly, let the earth bring forth living creatures and livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. Diversity. Then God said, let us make man. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. Diversity. Then Genesis 1 and 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made. And what did he say about it? He said it was very good. Right? So diversity is not the pressing issue here. Diversity reflects the power and the beauty of God in creation. Diversity is even reflected in the promise of God. It was God who actually created the diversity that we see in the text of, in Ephesians of Jew and Gentile. When he called a man named Abram in Genesis 15 as he told old and childless Abram to look towards the heaven and number the stars. Saying, so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 17, Abram now, Abraham receives the sign of the covenant of God's promise. In verse 10, he says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the foreskins, or rather in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. But the purpose of God's diversity is for blessing, not for division. If you follow the story in Genesis 22, verses 18, he tells Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God was working in the mystery that once was hid in scripture says for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1 and 26, 27. So the issue of separation in the church at Ephesus, much like the issue that plagues our country and so many others where diversity of people and cultures exist, is division. Rather than celebrating diversity and acknowledging one another as image bearers of God and both being recipients of his mercy and great love, these groups decided to divide themselves, to separate. Verse 11 again says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The uncircumcision was not a term of endearment. This was not a pet name. It was an occasion of the Jews to flaunt Christ in the face of the Gentiles. It was a declaration, a constant and derogatory reminder that they were outsiders. That they were without. That the Jews were the haves and the Gentiles the have-nots. To remind them, as the scripture says, that they were without. Without Christ, without citizenship, without promise, without hope, and without God, scripture says. And they made every effort to maintain this division. Again, going so far as to put up actual walls in the church to keep Jews and Gentile believers separated. But don't miss the fact that both identities are in the flesh. Both Jew and the Gentile. Look again with verse 11 for me if you have your Bibles. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles... In the flesh, call the uncircumcision by the circumcision which is made in the flesh. One group thought they were so much better than the other, but both were in the flesh and in need of a savior. But pride has a way of creating a false balance. One who is lifted up in pride has the unique ability to hide his own faults while highlighting the faults of others, right? When we cling to our identities in the flesh, our prideful hearts ensure that the only possible result when interacting with others who don't look like us and think like us, who are different from us, the only result is conflict. And the result of conflict outside of Christ is division. And division is detrimental to the health of any community, especially the church. An article by a guy named Sam O'Neill appeared in Preaching Today back in January of 2006 regarding a rare cancer that Tasmanian devils were spreading with their mouths. The article says that over the course of several years, infected devils continued to inflict deadly wounds with their mouths and consequently the disease spread at an alarming rate, ultimately wiping out over 40% of the population. So this is how he ends the article, which is why I wanted to share it. He ends the article sharing that a familiar fate or a similar fate threatens the church if its members persist in the devilish behavior of wounding their neighbors with their mouth. We can say unusual, unusually unkind things to each other when pride sits on our hearts. And in these moments, when we are unkind, we are unkind, we speak from 
pride, when we speak from our flesh, we see separation, we see division, we see families and friendships and marriages and even churches all fall apart. In his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, William Gurnall is quoted as saying, if the gospel will not allow us to pay our enemies in their own coin and give them wrath for wrath, evil for evil, then much less will it suffer brethren to spit fire at one another's face. So how do we level the false balance? How do we pause our pride and tame our tongue? How do we get from separation to reconciliation? Because that's the hope. Amen? The answer, of course, is Jesus. Conflict and separation don't reflect the heart of God for his church. Remember who the letter is for. He said in Ephesians 1 and 1 to the saints in Ephesus. He's writing to the church. The heart of God is more reflected in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 where he says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 18 goes on to say that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God's heart for the church is not separation, but reconciliation through Christ. And so Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look with me at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace who hath made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus broke down the hostility, but before he could make peace between man or between men and make man one, the hostility between God and man had to be addressed. Romans 8 verses 6 and 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. To, hostile to God. For, it is, for it does not, it's tough reading a text that you have committed to memory in another Another version. Y'all excuse me. For the, mind is, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There can be no peace where sin is unchecked. In Christ, God deals with our sin and thus our separation. God through Christ was reconciling the world to himself and us to each other. Paul says in Ephesians 3 and 8, Unto me who am the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. John 3.16, a familiar text, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This grace, this love was so deep, so vast, so amazing, so sacrificial that Christ the Son was set to suffer for our peace. Here again the intentional words in Ephesians 2, You who were once afar off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. 
He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between us. How? In his flesh. Reconciling us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Our reconciliation to God and to each other is a costly one. Our peace is a costly one. So when we dare to doubt what God is doing or desires to do around us or through us, know that God doesn't do cheap grace. We've been bought with a price, Scripture says, a very high price. Scripture says here for Christ himself is our peace. So while conflict apart from Christ leads to separation, conflict in Christ leads to reconciliation. Through the cross we have been reconciled. There were real differences between those people, right? We're talking about resilient realness. There are real differences between us. We can't get to being resilient if we're not real. That's why we encourage honest and open communication, right? But God doesn't deny our differences. He's just saying that our differences should not be our identity. We've heard this early in in, in the past couple of weeks here. Identity drives behavior, right? So in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ. Your identity was once in the flesh. You were once a Jew, once a Gentile, once a a, a black man or woman or a white man or woman, once a conservative, conservative, once a liberal, but now in Christ. You who were once far off, but now have been brought near. You had no access. He says they were without hope and without God, but now you have access. Your status has changed. You're a new creation. You have a new identity. Again, in Christ, we move from conflict to reconcile. The only thing that tells me that I have to love my brother is a heart that is loved by and loves God. For apart from that, the, the words that how can a man love God whom he has never seen but hate his brother whom he sees every day would have no meaning to me. We may be offensive to each other, but ultimately it is God who is offended. The psalmist writing in uh, Psalm 51 and 4 against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For a proper view of how we should see and treat each other, we have to have a proper view of God. Look with me at our final text here in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 17, he says, And he came and preached to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built into a dwelling dwelling place for God by the Spirit. To those who are far off, why bring them near? Why Why break down the dividing wall? Why kill the hostility? To what end were the unsearchable riches of Christ preached to the Gentiles? To make us one, right? That's the goal. Separation, reconciliation, unification. 
It was to make us one, to fulfill the prayer of Jesus in John 17, as he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Our unification is a result of our reconciliation. One new man, one body, one nation, one family, one temple. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Romans 12 and 5. So we being many are one body in Christ and each one individually members of another. Galatians 3 and 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. So does unification mean that I lose my identity? Does my worth, my birth by the water and by the spirit, according to John chapter 3, somehow negate who I am in the flesh? Of course not. I'm still black. Matt's still white. Some of you will still vote Democrat next year, and some of you will still want to make America great again. That was my one joke. And that's not, the, not a jab at anybody. We always want to make sure we share that. We don't instruct people how to vote in the booth, amen? But we do care greatly about how you treat each other before and after. So when we talk about unification, we're not saying that all things should be uniform. Again, diversity is very much of God from creation to the work of the cross. But we are saying that who you are as a black person or white person or any person should be subject to who you are in Christ. We are saying that who you are as a man or as a woman should be subject to who you are in Christ. We are saying that no matter which party you align with, who you are as a member of that party should be subject to who you are in Christ. That's important. Why? Why is our identity in the flesh, or rather, why is it important that our identity in the flesh be subject to who we are in Christ? Because again, we've heard it several times this week, identity drives behavior. When I encounter diversity or when we encounter diversity, that diversity should not automatically cause division because our identity is tied first and foremost to Jesus. The hope is that when our identities in the flesh clash, emphasis on the when, because it's going to happen, right? We're diverse. We don't all have the same experiences. We don't all see things the same. When our identities in the flesh clash, the hope is that our identities in Christ will keep us at peace. That's the hope of resilient realness. So this is where we fight, not each other, but to walk worthy of our call as a church. This is where we condemn racism and segregation in the church. That's what he's talking about in the text. This is where we bury hostilities between believers because Jesus Christ, again according to Ephesians, himself is our peace. This is where we acknowledge that all have sinned. I don't have a stone to throw at you. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is where we yield ourselves to the spirit of God and allow him to build and mature us to the point where we can have those tough conversations with each other and continue to do life together. This is where the resilience behind our realness comes in. Lastly, as we close, I want to share a few challenges to expect on the road to resilience because certainly there's going to be some challenges, right? We can expect discomfort. Right? We tend to stay separated, not necessarily because we think diversity is hard, is easy rather, but we tend to stay separate because we know diversity is hard. So rather than risk or uh, rather than risk or sacrifice our emotional or mental and sometimes physical comforts, we may be tempted to just stay in our corners and do business as usual. Don't do it. We may experience loss of community. Sometimes we can catch heat from our respective camps when we go against the status quo, not wanting to lose social or economic capital in our camps. We may be tempted to just go with the flow rather than against it. Paul was going very much against the culture here. And lastly, and a very real challenge we can expect on the road to resilience is simply being resilient. Simply being resilient. We have to find ways to recharge and refocus and remind ourselves what's at stake when our patience or our, our grace meter gets a little low with those that we're walking with. Because until we learn each other's language, communicating can be tough. And that tough communication makes for real possibility to lead to burnout, to say it's not worth it. But I pray that we'll allow God to be God and do beautiful and powerful things among us through our diversity. I pray that we would refuse to be divided but rejoice in the common grace that falls to us in Christ. I pray that we yield ourselves to God and allow him to create God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-enduring relationships in our diversity. Because that's when we'll see resilient realness. Amen.